Scripture text this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 3 through 16. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Wow, that was great, Kimmy. <laughs> I was terrified to do it, so we had her do it. I would have butchered it halfway through, but you were, that was super. Well, why are we even studying this thing? You know, maybe you've heard this expression before. Maybe you've even said it, but uh, uh, I've, I've heard many, many times, you know, I'm into Jesus, but not the church. In other words, I, I'm into Jesus, uh, but not the church. Uh, I can understand that at one level. I mean, at one level, I get it. You know, I, I, I want to have a relationship with God. I, I, I believe in Jesus Christ, and yet I've been hurt by the church, or I don't see the, the need of the church. And, uh, but, but the question really reveals two problems. There's a deficiency and there's a danger with it. The deficiency, of course, is that it really fails to understand Scripture. It fails to understand that God has chosen uh, his son Christ to save a people, to gather them together and to make them into a body to display his glory to the world. And that God's going to both do his work through the church, both in saving people and in persevering them till the end. So it's a deficient view of Scripture to say that. It's also dangerous in the sense that uh, it assumes that you can kind of get there on your own and that you don't need others, that you don't need uh, brothers and sisters with you laboring. It kind of is this um, you know, individualistic attitude towards God. Now I know someone to say, well, I belong to the universal church. And, and I just want to say just for those of you who hold on to the universal church tightly, there are very few, maybe two scriptures that speak to a universal church. Virtually every reference to the church in the New Testament is to the local church. <clears throat> there's, there's no idea in the mind of any Bible writer uh, to be part of the universal church, but, but not to be deeply integrated within a local church. It, it was never one or the other. It was always the local church which is the visible expression of that universal church. So what does it have to do with this text that we just read? 
Uh, well, the text that we just read has to do with the church. I know you heard all those names and you think, well, I don't know who they are and I don't know where they come from. And it, it kind of seems superfluous. In fact, that's what Chrysostom, a great fourth century father, said. He said, I think that many, even of those who have the appearance of being extremely good men and women, they hasten over this part of the epistle. A superfluous. But I don't think so. I think it's an important part of the Bible. As I shared last week, one New Testament scholar thought this was the most important chapter in the New Testament. I think that might be a bit of a stretch, uh, but I think his point is good in the sense that it really gives us a snapshot as to what the early church was. Uh, what's the nature of relationships with people? How did the church survive? Uh, so what am I going to do with this? How, what kind of hay can I make with a text like this? Well, I just want to draw out some lessons to be learned about the nature of the church from this text. So there's four things I think you say. The first thing I think you're going to see is that the church is a community of workers. It's people who do labor in the glory of God for the betterment of people. Uh, so it's, it's a community of workers. Look with me at 3 to 5 again. You see Prisca and Aquila. He says, they're my fellow workers in the church. Now, many of you know them as Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, you find them in Acts. You find them in 2 Timothy. Uh, they were a husband and wife, and they served diligently. They had come from Pontus, which is in northern Turkey, and they had lived in Rome. Uh, an edict of Claudius, the emperor, around the mid-first century, threw all the Jews out of Rome. So they made their way to Corinth for safety. They met Paul there. They ministered with Paul there. And then they moved to Ephesus with Paul. They ministered with Paul there. They worked with Paul there. And then they made it back to Rome. And here again, they're ministering. They're not professional missionaries. They're just people. They're just ordinary folk. They're tent makers, actually. And, and we find out that the church of Rome actually was there. Maybe it's because they had more room. You know, they're tent makers, so they're stretching out canvas and, you know, think of all the bazaars and be a great business in Rome. Maybe they had the most amount of room to have the people. Uh, but they were my fellow workers. But not just Prisca and Aquila. You heard about Urbanus in verse 9. Urbanus was probably a slave. It's a slave name, but he was a worker in the Lord. Or think about the women that are mentioned. Mary worked very hard for you in verse 5. Mary and Tryphena, and Tryphosa. You know, their names mean delicate and dainty, and yet when he describes them, he says, they're hard workers. They're diligent at work. Or Persis, beloved, who is a great worker in the Lord. Uh, so what you see, now Paul didn't tell us what work they're doing. It could be that they were ministering to the sick. They were teaching, discipling. Uh, perhaps they were caring for the weak or the infirmed or handling the finances of the church. I think Paul didn't tell us because he doesn't want us to grade, well, she does this and he does that. That all work done in the Lord is good work. So when you look at this church, you see that labor, work, was part of being part of a church. Now listen, when, I, when people enter ministry, particularly when young ministers enter ministry, they're always surprised at the difficulty of the work. Ministry is hard. It's definitely work is involved to labor with people in the complicated nature of their lives, to struggle with them, to pray with them, to listen to them, pour out their hearts, to hear their stories, 
to teach them, it takes time and effort. There is hard work associated with many ministry. Please, I wouldn't, wouldn't say it any other way. It's a good work. It's a good work, but it's a hard work. It's a laborious work. But you see, this church was dedicated to it. But you notice that not just is it a hard work, it's an interdependent work. Paul didn't see himself as some big kind of lone ranger out there doing the work. And think of all the people that he is referencing as hard workers. And notice that they're all no names. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila were maybe known a little bit more, but they're all ordinary folk. They're, they're all no names. You know, we're so attached to names and personalities. We, we are a celebrity-ish culture. And, and yet these, we wouldn't have known these people if Paul didn't record them. I, I think about what, what about if Christ given a church in 50 years? Who will know who worked? I mean, most of us will long be forgotten. But we'll have done a good work. The work of the church was significant, and they were doing it. And they were ordinary people. Ordinary people doing a good work. Well, if you look, what, what would you say about your work in the life of the saints in this church? So if every person in this church did exactly the same amount of work that you do, would we be thriving or would we be on oxygen? If everybody did what you do, you know, we've heard in Romans 12 that you all have received gifts. And so how are you employing those gifts in the service of your brothers and sisters? Because the early church that was a thriving church was a working church. So that's the first thing we learned, that, that they worked, they were ministering. And this ministry was spread across. It wasn't the professionals doing it. Professionals were training, encouraging, coaching, and working, but you were doing that work. Uh, but secondly, we see that this church is acquainted with suffering. It's a, it's a church that understands suffering as part of this world. Again, with me, look at three to five. You have Prisca and Aquila. It says they risk their necks. Now, when they say they risk, they risk their necks, you know, you can imagine it's the pulling down of the collar, exposing the net, neck so that the blade knows where to strike. In other words, they were risking their lives for Paul. Now, we don't know how. Could have been trying to retrieve Paul from the riot in Ephesus in Acts 19. Maybe some other situation. But they both risked their necks. He and her. I love that. It wasn't just the guy. No, the guy and the girl risked their necks. She put her life on the line for Paul. I, I think in a way that's why you see Prisca. Most of the times you see Priscilla. Priscilla is the diminutive form. It's like Lizzie to Elizabeth. He is honoring her by calling her by that formal name. And out of the four occurrences in Scripture, she is mentioned first in three of them. Why? It, not one of these ladies first. No, I think he's honoring her. I, I think he's, he's holding her up before the church. She is a dynamic lady. I mean, she has served well. She's suffered well. She's suffered well as an example for us. But not just Priscilla and Aquila, but... Andronicus and Junia. You see that they are fellow kinsmen. They're, they're, they're kind of probably Jewish is what he's saying, but they're fellow prisoners. They suffered in jail with Paul. Again, now, now you ask, who's this Junia? Well, you know, it's been a big debate over that for centuries. Um, is it a male? Female? Well, 
probably female. First 13 centuries of the church consensus approach that she was a woman. Junia was a feminine name. And here she is listed. And do you notice what it says, that she was well known to the apostles? That could be translated, she was in fact well known among the apostles. That raises the question, was she a female apostle? Well, maybe. Could have been. Now remember, the apostles used in different contexts in the New Testament. She's not one of the twelve, of course, but apostle just means to be sent out, to be entrusted with a message, to be an emissary. And we know that Epaphrodites was an apostle, according to Philippians 2, and Barnabas was called an apostle in Acts 13. Maybe she was an apostle. Maybe she and her husband went out, the husband-wife team again, went out preaching the gospel and were thrown in jail with Paul. It would make sense as to why she was a fellow prisoner. But the point is that they suffered in jail. And let me remind you that as heinous as you may think jails of today, our jails of today do not compare to a first century jail. And yet she, a lady, and her husband suffering for the sake of the gospel. Or you see Apelles in verse 10. Apelles, it says he's approved in Christ. That word approved means tested, like you test metals to make sure that they're genuine. I, we don't know what trial he went through. Maybe it was a physical malady. Maybe it was some external persecution. We don't know. But what we know is Paul's saying he's approved. Yeah, he's genuine. He's the real deal. He has suffered. This is why I love faithful suffering more than I love miracles. Faithful suffering testifies to the power of God, I think, more than miracles. It's easy to believe in God if a flash in the pan comes and your situation's all fixed up. But to labor on diligently in the midst of struggle is greater to me as an evidence of God's power. And he was faithful. So here we have a church, a church that labored diligently together and, and, and a church that was acquainted with suffering. You'd almost think they expected it. Uh, so many people, when they come to faith in Christ, they understand, I've been saved by Jesus Christ, I'm a child of God, and all the power of God stands ready to serve and to help and to move me. And then they're just shocked when they are suffering or when trial comes or cancer or some other sickness or problems. Has God abandoned me? I lost my job. My marriage is in trouble. And we often feel like, whoa, I, I'm on God's team. How are we losing the game? I want to remind you, this is the tension that people fail to see in the Christian faith. We do have the promises of God. We've read through them all the way through this book. We were rebellious. We were sinners in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And yet God in his mercy saved us in Christ by faith. God has given us son to take upon himself our sins that we might be reconciled so that God is just. Our sins are punished in the son, but he's also the justifier. He's the one that does the work to reconcile us to himself, not us. And then what do we find? We find that we have a new life and that we find that we have the spirit of God and we have promises that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And so we think, well, that's great. We're in good shape. And then all of a sudden we hit the tough times. We begin to suffer. This is what we call about life in exile. You know, we live in this tension of in this world you'll have trouble. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And, and we live in this tension in the Christian life. We have the promises of God in one hand, and yet we also experience suffering. But what Peter tells the church in chapter 4 is he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you endure. 
He says rejoice. It's not as if something strange is happening to you when your marriage is in trouble, your job is not going well, your health is declining. Don't be surprised by that. We want to be prepared for it. This is what I would say to you, is that we as a church ought to prepare for suffering. We want to do it now. You don't want to figure out how to fly a plane when you're in the air. I mean, a few good lessons on the ground, probably a good thing. And, and we want to prepare now for suffering. You know, I was speaking with a missionary last week, and, and he, he ministers in a country where the government is actively opposed against the church. And uh, in this country and with this church, they all know that the church has been raided and broken up. And all the members of the church know, if they raid us, then we will meet in smaller groups at these different parts around the city. They know it. They plan it. It doesn't stop them from worshiping God. It's just, not, okay, we'll go over here next week if they bust up the church the week prior. And they prepare for it. We need to prepare for it. I mean, everybody is one phone call away. Just one. You, I don't know what the news would be, but you get one phone call, and life changes. And are you ready? I mean, are you firmly gripped to the truth that Jesus Christ will never leave us nor forsake us? That's one phone call. So we want to be a church that's acquainted with suffering. All of us will face it. Not one of us in this room will skirt around this issue at one point in life. But God is sufficient, and that, that's what Paul's saying. They've suffered well in the Lord. It's a good testimony to us. It's a good testimony. So it's a church that worked. It's a church that was acquainted with suffering. But it was also a church that really was, was affectionate. They were loving. Notice in verse 5, Eponidas, he's my beloved, Paul says, that first convert in Asia. He's my beloved. But he also says it in verses 8, he says, Ampliatus, beloved. Stachus, beloved in verse 9. Persis in verse 12. They're beloved. I mean, this is the nature of the gospel. The nature of the gospel is one that it changes the dynamic of our relationship. So in other words, we have certain biological, biological connections in life, but coming to faith in Christ, reconciling us to God, gives us a new father, makes us brothers and sisters. That's why Paul refers to them as brothers. Or he says, Rufus's mother was like a mother to me. I mean, she must have ministered to Paul at a level that he would call her a mother. We don't throw out mother casually. You have one mother, they take great care of us, not a lot of points of comparison with her. She's unique. But he says she was like a mother to me. It kind of gives you this impression of the love that he had for this church. You know, quickly we think Paul is kind of bookish, intellectual. He's that distant visionary, always kind of out by himself thinking about the next move. We don't see that with Paul. Paul knows these people. And I want to remind you, he'd never been there. He'd never been there. You know, they say a good leader knows the names of his people. He listed 26 names. Now, they, he may have met some of them in Corinth or Ephesus, but he had never been to this church, and yet he knows them by name. And not only does he know them by name, he knows things about them. I, I mean, this is the kind of leader Paul is. He loves these people. He wants all of them greeted that he knows, just to affirm his love for them. That's what the church is to be, and sadly, this is where we've often failed. 
the church is to be a place really where affection is evident. And not kind of I love you and language with just kind of hollow words, but a concrete love. A, a love where in this church we would show honor to one another, as he says in Romans 12. Show honor to one another, deference to one another. We would speak well of one another. We would be encouraging one another. We would be speaking to the grace of God. This is what I see in your life. This is, that I'm, this is why I'm thankful to you. That we would be verbal about how we see the goodness of God in one another's lives. We would honor one another. But not just that, we would show hospitality to one another. It's another concrete way of, of showing love, right? That we could be hospitable to one another. I don't mean entertaining. It's not what I mean. I mean, we're opening up our homes so as to help see Christ formed in the lives of other people. You know, Carol does this with excellence. I don't know how many thousands of meals that she has made. I, I don't know how many. I, I was going to try to figure it out. I like to do that number thing from my accounting days. But, but I, I, I just know there's a ton. But around the table, there's been a lot of tears, a lot of prayers, a lot of hope, a lot of challenge. A lot of hurt shared. <clears throat> Opening your home up to people. I know some of you don't feel comfortable doing this. Maybe you feel like your homes aren't good enough. Well, that may encourage you to get coffee with them. But to get face to face, we live in a very technological world right now where much of our conversation, much of our inter interaction is done through, through the computer and through Facebook and the like. And, and it, it, that medium has its place in our lives. But that cannot be a substitute for looking at people and, and hearing them. The, the intonation of their voice, the breaking of their voice if they're sad. You don't, you don't get that unless you're across the table from them. Being hospitable, not just eating together, but eating and talking. Think about all the meals that Jesus Christ ministered through and over. You know, I was thinking about the hospitality. How do I try to encourage you toward this and, you know, I was thinking about in 1 Peter 4, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Well, that would cause us normally to get about and scamper and get things ready. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So we're to be praying even as we see the end coming, whenever that will be. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That's what I'm talking about. He says, show hospitality to one another. Seems like a strange command when the end of all things is at hand, that you're to be sitting down and continuing your conversation, continuing to see Christ formed in people. That's a good concrete way of loving one another, inviting someone out for lunch. But not just, not just showing hospitality, but, but even serving one another. That's what he says there. He says, serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. What gift do you have and what person needs the gift that you have? This is the beauty of a complementary nature of marriage. You know, marriage works because God gifts some people with skills and gifts that the other doesn't have. And, and, and he gifts this one with skills that this person. And together they get to serve one another. And that's what we do at the church. We serve one another. Another way to show concrete love is to, to pray for one another. You saw, if you remember this church, uh, Lauren sent out to you, I know you can't read this, trust me, uh, but it is a calendar and it was sent to you with the names of all the members of the church spread out probably half a dozen names per day throughout the days of the week. This would be a wonderful way for you to show love for one another by praying for them. So here, 
and it doesn't have it on Sunday because we're gathering together. Uh, but this Monday, we can be praying for Winston and Rachel Brady and, and the Brindles, all of them, Mike and Jan and Corbin, Kristen, Haley, Nathan, and Hiel, <clears throat> Matt and Haley Brown, Glenn and Linda Brown. They're Monday. They're the ones that we're going to be praying for. It, it's a way of showing love or showing affection for one another. Now, I got to touch on verse 16, of course. You know, you got to greet each other with a holy kiss. This is now the way we're going to greet each other with the holy kiss. What does this mean? Well, <clears throat> you know, obviously, kissing is a wonderful way of greeting in many, many cultures. In Europe, when Carol and I lived there for a number of years, you kissed one another on each side of the cheek. That was a little awkward at first when you got a little too close. Um, but the, it was a way of greeting people. It still is in the Middle East as well. It, it's just a, it, it's a way of showing intimacy. When he says greet each other with a holy kiss, he's just saying show affection for one another. It's not like a handshake. That doesn't work as much. We do a handshake with a person we don't even know. But may we hug those. That we, just, we, we love them. We want to express our love in tangible ways. So all these are ways that we can show that we love one another as a church, like this church did. But let me give you one other way. Another way that we can show love is to try to be more lovable. To try to be more lovable. You, you know, the church is often plagued with having people that often are not always lovable, and it's hard to love those who aren't lovable. So one way, you know, maybe they get their nose out of joint, they're oversensitive at a comment made, or maybe they're just harsh with their words or sarcastic, or maybe their rhetoric is, is sharp, or maybe they're just kind of off-putting. And I would just ask you to consider, how can I be more lovable? How can I see God and pray that maybe I won't take words and be hurt so quickly? Maybe I'll give people the benefit of the of the doubt. Maybe I'll try to be more outward. I won't be so reclusive. And maybe I won't be as sarcastic. Maybe I won't talk as much, but I'll let someone else talk. But, but pray that maybe we can be more lovable. And that's a way of loving other people, because we're easier to love than, aren't we? But it's a good prayer. Could you ever see praying that? God, would you help me be more lovable? Would you help me be able to be more approachable and lovable. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder what you understand me saying. You know, what's your experience been in the church? Have you been hurt by the church? Because I think this kind of church would be attractive to you. I would think that in our, in our kind of anti-community world, I, I would almost think this would be attractive to you. We could learn together, we could serve together, we could suffer together, we could love together. You know, God has built all people, Christian and non-Christian alike. He's built us for community. We all want to be loved. We want to be valued. We want to be cherished. We want to be secure in one another. We do. Uh, so many of us feel safer alone, I know, but there's still, that, there's still that part of you that wants people in your life. God's designed us that way. He's designed us to come together. I hope you can see this church is loving. I hope the members of the church, we will pray that we might be lovable to them. Okay, the last thing we find is this church was a community that were very different from one another. They were very different. It was a diverse community. You, you see the racial diversity between Jew and Gentile. 
Jew and Gentile, five or six names are Jewish. The rest are probably Greek. Some are Latin. Uh, but it's a diverse community. Now, it's hard for us in America, kind of the melting pot, most of us, we trace our origins outside of this country, not to this country. And, and so we don't understand this gap between Jew and Gentile. They did. We were the great American experiment. experiment. So it's kind of foreign to us. But I want you to see it was a big move, Jew and Gentile together. But there's more than racial diversity. There was also social diversity. You see Ampliatus and Hermes and you see Urbanus. Those were normal slave names. Uh, they were either slave or freedmen, and that means that they were slaves, but they got their freedom. Whereas Aristobulus was, was perhaps the grandson of Herod the Great. You know, Herod the Great, that Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. So, so his household, now he might not have been a Christian, but there were Christians in his household, and that household had access to power, or Narcissus. He was a freedman, that means he was a slave, but he became free. He was wealthy. He was a friend of Claudius. Not to Nero. Nero killed him when Nero took over. But his household had connections to power. So you had that kind of the power, the power people, the white collar, the blue collar. So you see this early church had a real big balance in social diversity, but also gender diversity, right? None of these names are women. I mean, Paul, they suffered with him, they served with him, they sat in prison with him. I mean, I hope you see the prominence that Paul is giving to women. The honor that he is according to women. It's just amazing. They didn't fight this diversity. They embraced it. And that's the lesson. That's the takeaway for us. You know, many churches don't like diversity. We, we may verbalize we do, but we don't like, we, we tend to want to get people by some implicit pressure. We want people to think the same way about politics and health and education and, and, and how we do life. And even the way we dress, we tend to want to get people looking the same. We definitely do in our culture. You know, we live in a culture now where we want groupthink. We do. Censorship is coming on so that we can't say what we think. We have to say what's acceptable. And if we don't, then you're going to get taken over the coals. That's the way humanity works. The church is different. The church revels in diversity. Why? Because when there is when there is a unity in diversity, it clarifies the gospel. It magnifies the gospel. In other words, for there to be a unity in the mixing of cultures, it causes the gospel to stand up and, and be seen. How so? Well, to bring about a unity in the midst of diversity, you have to work through what's essential and what's primary. And that comes to the fore, and that gets clarified. And so when we have all of our differences together, and yet we're together in Christ around the gospel, then that's what comes to the fore. The secondary and the tertiary, they go to the side. They're not unimportant. They just don't play the same role that the primacy of the gospel does. That's why I love a diverse church. So let's pursue our diversity. It isn't just white and black. It's not just color. It's diversity of age. If you're retired or if you're an older person, invite a single over for lunch. Uh, bring a student over to lunch. Get to know them. What's God doing in their life? Where are they from? How are they doing in life? Let them ask you questions. Those of you who are healthy, go visit the sick. 
If you're married, bring a single over. If you're married without children, invite families over with children. I mean, there's plenty of diversity here along many different demographic lines through which we can see the beauty of the gospel holding us together in the midst of our different stations or positions in life. Well, when you look at this church, I, I think, I, I hope you see it's a beautiful church, and Paul knows it, even though he hadn't been there. It's a church that is working together, and a church that's suffering together, a church that's loving together, and a church that doesn't mind being together, even though they're different. Well, how does this come about? You know, how do we bring about this church? Well, I think it's implicit in this list of greetings. Let me just read you what I mean. He says in verse 2, we didn't read it today, last week, but it's part of this unit. He says, welcome her, that's Phoebe, welcome her in the Lord. He speaks about uh, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Or he says um, of, in verse 5, the first convert in Christ. Or 7, they were in Christ before me. 8, they're beloved in the Lord. 9, he's my fellow worker in Christ. Or Apelles approved in Christ. Or 11, greet those in the Lord. Or 12, they worked hard in the Lord. Or 13, he was chosen in the Lord. What's he saying here? 11 different times, in Christ, in the Lord. In other words, what brought this church together is a, is a common union with Jesus Christ. It's people who heard the gospel, that God has moved with grace to save men and women through faith in Christ. It's people in Christ. They have put their faith in him to follow him. Hey, listen, most of these people, they were, they were, they were Romans. They worshipped Apollo and Aphrodite and Zeus. They had a pantheon of Roman gods that they all worshipped. They're not now. They're in the Lord now. And that's what happened. The gospel changed them. The gospel rerouted their relationships. No longer are we sacrificing to the gods. We're with one another. We have union with God through Christ, which gives us union with each other. So we're together in life right now. And that's what brought this church together. So if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, again, what do you do with this idea of the church? I'd love to speak with you about it. I mean, do you want to be part of a group that loves one another? You just can't join. It's not like the Rotary Club. It, it's, it, joining the church is through faith. It, it's, it's really a humbling experience. You have to humble yourself to recognize that, in fact, you have been rebellious against God. And when I mean rebellious against God, I don't mean they have to think bad thoughts about God. You can just say, I'm about me. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. I'm the most important guy on this earth. That is absolute defiance to the creator who made you, who's giving you breath, who gives you life and gifts and talents right now. And it's saying, you're out of my life. You're out of the picture. That's what defiance is. And to come into the church is to humble yourself and say, I don't know if I'm going to get up tomorrow. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I, I need to be forgiven. I, I need one to come and deliver me and reconcile me to you. I have too much guilt and stain. And as, uh, as Scott prayed, who has clean hands? Who has a pure heart? None of us. We need one who has clean hands and a pure heart to deliver us. Um, and I encourage you to consider that. Uh, for the Christian here, I, I would say to you do, do you, do you rejoice over the church? Do you see the church as a cooperative of salvation where we're trying to help each other get there? 
You know, going to heaven is a, a, a distant friend of mine. I've met him. We've had a few conversations. I ran across something he read the other day, or he wrote the other day. And he said, going to heaven is not like riding, riding a motorcycle, riding a Harley. I'm getting there my way, my time, and I'm riding to heaven. Isn't it going to heaven is more like on a school bus. We're kind of packed with people we probably don't like and probably don't want to be with, but we're going together. We're going to need each other along the way. And that's what the church is about. The church is saying for me to say to other people, watch my life. You have permission to speak to me, to challenge me. I need your help. I need to finish well, and I cannot finish well alone. Nobody will finish well alone, I promise you. We need one another. And so I pray that your relationships within this church is grounded on this idea that I share Christ with you. We have a union that is built through faith in Christ that brings us together. And that's the picture of the church, is us laboring together, us working together, us suffering together. And you've been good at that, I know, in our lives. And us loving together and us enjoying one another even though we're quite different.